After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi, everyone. It is Mind Rolling, Raghu. I'm back with you with Shantam Seth. And I'm here on the West Coast of the United States. And Shantam is in Delhi. We were just discussing because it's Diwali or was uh, yesterday. It is today for us. And um, I, I was worried about the particles he might have been breathing in. Jeez. So you're, you're okay, though, right? And he's sitting outside, everybody. You can't imagine because... I spend a lot of time in in that area, so you're okay. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine, and um, you know the pollution levels are very high, but as we don't see it, we don't uh, bother too much about it. We live happily, 23 million of us, uh, doing our daily work without realizing that we're actually living in a little bit of a uh, sort of uh, particulate bubble. <laughs> particulate bubble. Oh. All right. Well, uh, everybody stay safe. We're living where there's fires in California oh, yes. everywhere right now. So, you know. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yes, yes. I, it's, I read, uh, yes. It's, that, um, yeah. it's that part of the, the yuga, that Kali yuga they talk about, yes. maybe? Mm -hmm. Yes. So, Shantam, uh, everybody, I couldn't even begin to talk about all of the kinds of things that Shantam is involved with. But, uh, I mean, from the kind of good works that he's been doing in different parts of India to his dedication to Buddhism, uh, he spent a lot of time in the West. Um, I, You know what, to me, though, the most compelling thing for me when, when we, we met and I was, you know, got a little familiar with who you are is Thich Nhat Hanh. And the time that you spent, I saw a beautiful picture of you and everybody. Thich Nhat Hanh, is, who is still with us, uh, is an extraordinary uh, Vietnamese Zen monk. And he's had a vast influence uh, uh, on uh, uh, every, worldwide, but certainly so much so here in the West. Um, so enough for me. Tell me a little bit about you grew up and then how, how did this all evolve for you? terms of your commitment to the path most uh, yes i think uh, i think the i started uh, i lived a, a regular life in india which is uh, I was brought up in a relatively privileged way so i went to a very fancy school here um went to what is considered the best university um and then um emergency happened in india which is a type of a, a control of all the uh, all your human rights by the political establishment 
So my parents thought it may be good for me to go out of the country. So I went to study footwear manufacture in England. I was only 18 or 19 at the time, and uh, I suffered three racial attacks at that time. Uh, and I realized that you know, everyone isn't always that good to you. It's it, just because of your color that may be much more attentive to issues of women's rights or caste rights, all these people who are discriminated for, by birth, for, for, for nothing to do with their, their, <laughs> their doing. Um, and fortunately, I was very successful quite early in the corporate world. But then I, I went and smashed an MG sports car uh, when I was 23. And luckily, I wasn't wearing a seatbelt. And so I was thrown out and I survived. So when I woke up out of coma in hospital, I thought, what this have I done for England? anyone? Is this, this is in England. England. Yes, yeah. I was studying in England and working in England in a multinational company called Clark's. And it was interesting because I'd been working for them in India, buying shoes in India. I'd moved out of my hotel, I remember, in Agra uh, and started living with the Jatavs, which are the shoe workers, and living in their slum to see what is their conditions. Because my hotel bill for one night was more than what uh, they earned in a week doing an extremely um, intricate, uh, skillful job of uh, making shoes. You, know, it's, it's, it, you need the skill of an eye doctor for that sort of work, what they were doing. So I started living with them. So I knew there was a lot of suffering in the world, but you know, I hadn't done nothing for it. So when I came out of hospital, I decided that I want to do something for the world. And at that time, the only thing I understood was politics because of uh, what had happened. So then I got... And I also didn't understand why poor people poor and why rich countries rich and what is the relationship, why I as a 23-year-old should be earning so much when a 50-year-old skilled man in India is not, just because I was earning for a British company. So then I decided to go to university to understand these, these questions. But I also became an activist. And through my activism, I got elected as a Green and all sorts of different things happened. But basically, I became a little bit on the front line of, of the anti-nuclear movement, mm. uh, which led me to get arrested, go to jail. Uh, and I sort of became anti-establishment, anti-racist, anti-sexist, anti-apartheid. <laughs> so it was a bit like that. So that built a lot of anger in me. It was anger against injustice, but it was still anger. And I realized that I was becoming part of the problem. Mm. And at one point, I sort of had a burnout, a sort of breakdown, maybe... Some people call it compassion overload or whatever it is. Uh, but anyway, something happened which made me uh, really feel like I had no energy. And at that time, I started looking for a spiritual path. Being brought up in India, uh, even in quite a secular way, uh, I started searching. So I first went to Indian gurus. In fact, I remember on that search, I even went to Kanchi at that time. I went to Hirakhan Baba's place. I went to Kanchi. Kanchi, but uh, Neem Karoli Baba was not alive. Ma, yeah, it is, yeah, yeah. This was in the eight, early 80s. Eight, 80s, yeah. It was just a relatively sleepy ashram. Um, I went to many of the well known gurus of the time, you know, the Ammajis and the Sai Babas. And, but I found there was too much. I'm, I realized I'm not the Bhakti path type. So I remember Ammaji saying to me once, I, there were only 20 people with her at that time. Now it's millions. It was just a small ashram in Kerala. And I remember saying, Shantam, oh, you need more faith. You, know, you need more faith. I said, yeah, you know, Ammaji, I, 
uh, I have a skeptical bent of mind. So, uh, so anyway, so I, I loved her. I thought she was great, but you know, it was not my, my path. Then I went all over the place, Quakers, Sufis. I mean, I did the worst. And then I became a manager of a performing troupe. So it's a long version to your answer, but it no, tells no. you why I came to this. Yeah, yeah. And to, to Thich Nhat Hanh. And then I started slowly finding that the Buddha path was very much uh, aligned to my way of looking at reality. Um, I think there were different elements of it. One was, of course, the primacy of suffering. I felt that, uh, you know, it's not just all bliss around. And because of my own personal suffering and also the suffering of others. Um, and that's the starting point of the Buddha Dhamma. And then the second thing I liked very much was the idea of anatma, or the, 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 there was nothing which is, had intrinsic existence. Uh, because I felt that the whole atma theory in India had, uh, had justified a caste system and a lot of oppression over centuries. Individual soul. The, the idea of the individuated soul that transmigrates body to body uh, because of karma or one, of, of your works in one life to the other life. And this being brought up in India, I was um, highly suspicious of uh, because of what I saw around me. And then I felt the whole practice of uh, self-reliance, that you can actually you can control your reactivity to certain things, that it is not predestined. There are lots of schools of thought in India, which are also very much of, you know, what me worry, it's all, you know, such a tananda bliss. <laughs> what me you know. worry. Uh, that's Alfred E. <laughs> Newman. That was a, a philosophy that started here in the Americas. <laughs> <laughs> yes, maybe it was, uh, nobody patented it, but I know that um, there was this one which Meher Baba said, what is it? Uh, uh, don't worry, be happy. Okay, and, yes, yes. And that, and that got taken by some fish. Uh, I, I bought a fish for my daughter some years ago, and <laughs> he opened his mouth saying, "Don't worry, be happy." So, All right. Well, wait. Now I got <laughs> so anyway. Shantam, wait. I have to. Sorry, I, I, I just sidetracked. Sorry. No, yeah, no, sorry. it's not. Please. It's not at all a sidetrack. <laughs> the fact is, it's a funny thing because both Ramdas and I both got uh, sparked by Mayor Baba. Don't worry, be happy. Okay. Oh. The first thing I ever saw about any mystical Eastern anything. Yes. I don't think I knew about the Hare Krishnas, you know, who were everywhere, no. you know, late yes. Yeah. So Mayor Bob is our guru. Our, our, yes. Well, uh, yes. yes. <laughs> we love Yeah. Him. He was Mr. Love, you know. And yes. Yeah. I remember well, I've come. Yeah. You know, he used to feed, you know, the mosques in India, right? He yes. would, who These are God intoxicants. They would yes. just be laying out in the street. And they couldn't even feed themselves. They were so lost in bliss. Yeah. So Mayor Baba would go and he would feed them personally, you know, right yeah. in, food into their mouths. No, no, no. Phenomenal. I never had the honor to meet him, but I know many of his, some of his disciples. And I realized that I remember there was something which was stuck in my mind, still sticks in my mind. So I have not come to teach. I've come to awaken. Uh, mm. You know, it's a very, and so I think that was, I mean, that is my path still in a way. I mean, that's, but, but anyway, so look, coming back to my little Buddha story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there, and I think the fourth element, which I really liked, was the element of uh, mindfulness practice. Um, and, you know, I'd been practicing now, I started practicing with Goenkaji on uh, his Vipassana things in India. And then I, uh, then I went to America as a manager of performing troupe. And uh, for 
it was a two-month tour of the West Coast in all these sort of hip places, you know, Esalen and, uh, I don't know, the, these near, near, near some lake uh, in the mountains, beautiful lake, lake areas. Lake Tahoe. Lake Tahoe, that's yeah. right. So we all these sort of, you know, slightly upmarket hippie places. And, um, and then I started meeting people who were interested in Buddhism and Native American teachings. And I felt <clears throat> by this time I needed some grounding. Uh, I'd got involved with quite a lot of Shaivite chanting and things like this. And I needed some grounding. So Buddhism also helped me with grounding. And then slowly on that search, I asked somebody, can I, do you know somewhere where I can combine Native American teaching with, uh, with Buddhism? And they said, oh, there's a place called Ojai Foundation. Oh, in, near, That's huh? where I am right now, in Ojai. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. So, that's, <laughs> so anyway, so that's where I went out. I hitched down. I went there. I was a bit like an Indian hippie in America, actually. And that's yeah, what yeah, yeah. I look searching for, you know, a spiritual path. And uh, I mean, it's important, just as a aside, I think for people from the West, when they come to a country like India, uh, they have no particular place to, to understand the society easily, to make that. So, so they're very open to experience both internally and externally. For me, being brought up in India, I had too many um, reference points to know what is uh, working and not working and what is, what is a hoax and what is not a hoax and what is also allowed and not allowed by my family social structure. Whereas going to America, I was free. So I could hip around, you know, from making jewelry on the beach or working in an avocado orchard or, you know, uh, whatever I had to do, but also sort of spiritually. So it was interesting that you have to go to a, an unhabituated environment to actually touch those seeds of awakening or, or something which allows you to open. So I think that's what happened to me in America. It was a bit of a reverse for me. I went to America for my spiritual... Uh, uh, yeah. And then I, I started... That during, while I was in Ojai Foundation, um, there, was a, there were a number of teachers who came. So there were people like Sun Sansanim, and who was a Korean teacher, a Japanese teacher. And then there was a retreat by a man called Thich Nhat Hanh, And nobody could pronounce his name. <laughs> you know, so they just called it oh, the Kick the Can Retreat. <laughs> because, you know, you know, who was, anyway, so on the second day of the retreat, I remember, he was teaching us walking meditations. And uh, it's this Sierra Madre, I don't know, I, what, what, there's some beautiful hills around Ojai. Yeah, mountains, and, yeah, beautiful mountains. Yeah, so we were walking there, and uh, I think for the first time in my life, I really touched peace uh, as a visceral uh, experience rather than as an idea. Uh, you know, I had idea of peace in the world, but what, what, what happened? What, what was the? Actual... I think it was just when I was stepping on the earth, the way the instruction had been given by uh, Thai, Thich Nhat Hanh, we, we call Thai, yeah. uh, was that I really felt that I had uh, lost that sense of me and mine and I, whereas I was really in touch with the earth in such a way that there was no separation, and it wasn't. Uh, it, you know, these are felt experiences, uh, so it is. If you describe it, it's, it's sort of what we might call a non-dual experience in that sense. But I think it's more to do with a, a presence that we, we all have inhabiting in us that, that we allow to express itself. So it's our own presence. Everyone has that presence. 
but when we allow that without our mind and you know interference of ideas so i think that's what happened there mm. uh, and then i knew that this is possible to to to, to do this with, with the right practice mm. and and then the story carries on yeah yeah well carry on a little with uh, with uh, Ty because you know we just love to hear how you your experience of being with him meeting him and and you you spent quite a bit of time i think with him yeah so that was in 1987 mm. uh, krishnamurti just uh, passed away recently uh, this land was just above the krishnamurti foundation uh, and um, i went back to india after that thinking i met somebody and i know a path and also i was very happy that it was an indic civilizational wisdom culture of buddhism i wasn't having to import something like a native american thing into my life so it has great value you know the tribal cultures so when i came back to india i was practicing in that way and also doing some vipassana meditations and and then um i wrote him a letter saying that you know if you ever want to come to india please and this letter landed on his table at a time when he had just written a book called old path white clouds and he was planning to come to india so the letter landed on his desk and you know um he didn't remember who i was uh, so he checked with joan halifax who was the person who was looking after the oi foundation and she in good uh, jedish language probably said i was kosher so mench you were a mench a mench she mench. said yeah. she, <laughs> okay. she, she's a good friend too roshi <laughs> okay so anyway so that was uh, so she just uh, chang kong who's been his uh, companion and and uh, co-teacher for many years rang up and then we connected and they said we'd like to organize this pilgrimage so at that point they came to india in november 1988 and they came for 35 days for with about 30 people and we did this phenomenal journey uh, to all the sites associated with the buddha i've been brought up in that area in patna and so i've been to many of the places as a child but you know in india as you know we have made buddha into some sort of avatar some sort of god to worship you know and what tiknathan did for me was to bring the buddha back as a human being uh, that is very important to me that he was a human being and that we all had that potential of awakening so after the journey which we i got to know and and i was is very compassionate he's really a, you know he's what you know he'll hold your hand he'll point things out he's like a little like a like a dear friend but so wise that you don't even realize he's being wise you know he's just doing it very naturally and uh, you know sit with you and eat some food with you and is is very low key um, actually his nature is like that he's not much of a extrovert he's much more of a hermit style guy So then after the journey he said you know you seem to like this you seem to be good at doing this stuff why don't you do it every year it's a practice the buddha suggested in the mahaparinirvana sutra uh, to do pilgrimage associated to the sites associated with the buddha it's a practice so he said why don't you do it every year so from 1988 i started doing a practice every winter going to all the pilgrimage sites and as a practice and in the summer i'd go to plum village which is the center of tiknathan mm. uh, in france So this became my two sort of things in the year and the rest of the time I was working in social development with Oxfam and then I worked with the UN but every year I would do this as my 
as my thing. Mm. So I was trying to combine my spiritual and social life and my political. I still had, I was still a political animal, but uh, with the spiritual bent, I guess. So, <laughs> so that was my so yeah. tweaking. And then um, Thich Nhat Hanh was very kind. I mean, he was really, I think he was encouraging me to be a monk uh, quite a lot. To the extent that he had my head shaved once, gave me a robes. But at one point I realized that that wasn't really my path. Um, and I, in fact, remember telling him that in, in India, many teachers are grihasthis, are family people. Um, and he said, well, you can't combine the two, but you know, it's all, he said it's a more difficult path in some ways. And so I said, yeah, but most people who are coming to the ashram, to, the, uh, to Plum Village, are suffering from two things I see. One is relationships and one is livelihood. And I said that I'd like to go through these myself and see if I can still be a happy person. And if not, a free person. <laughs> you did, did you? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that's how I, I, you know, I've always tried to take the harder path in a way. Yeah. And he did say, he said, it's a tougher path. You know, yeah, so, yeah. Well, you know, um, uh, Neem Karoli Baba used to say to us, marriage brings you greed, lust, and attachment. Go for it. And then, ma marriage what? Marriage brings greed, lust, and attachment. Right, right. It is a I difficult path. And you know what? He, I, I started, I was very friendly with one of the women there, and we spent yes. a lot of time. And he would, every time we'd go there, he'd say, Oh, tomato doste? It's, you know, are you friends now? You're friends? Oh, yeah, we're friends. Anyhow, that advanced to another stage. And then he, he said, well, just get married. Are you going yes. to get married? Because he never told us to do a thing. He was always, right. even going to the Vipassana course. Are you going yes. to the court? You know, it was all like that. And then uh, at one point I said to him, you know, you say that marriage brings greed, lust, attachment. Why, why would anybody do it? I was kind of saying, are you doing this to me? This is rotten. Yeah. I don't want to. <laughs> and he looked at me and he just went, your desire. And then I got it completely. Mm -hmm. And uh, thank God I got that then, and I knew I had to yes. go through it, and I did, you know. Yeah. Yeah, we have yeah. two wonderful But I think, I think what, what I've learned also, uh, Raghu, is that uh, these seeds arise are latent in everyone, whether you're a monk or not a monk. And if it's not greed uh, of one sort, it'll be greed of another sort. You know, if it's not attachment of one sort, it's not attachment of another sort whether it's to power, position, something, you know, even attachment to the idea of awakening, or personal enlightenment. So I think what I like about the Buddha's teachings is really looking back at your uh, mental formations and your, uh, your mind states and seeing, okay, so, oh yes, that is a, a form of greed or from jealousy or from attachment. And, uh, oh, that's what it is. And, that, and then you train your mind to see, okay, why is that coming up? And you start seeing a pattern and you start saying, oh, well, but five minutes ago, I wasn't feeling like that. So why should I react on this now? And five minutes later, I'm not feeling like that. Or I can come back to my breath and, you know, change the channel, the inner channel. Uh, so I think I've learned a lot of that from Thich Nhat Hanh and obviously mm. from the Buddha's teaching, that lineage. Um, and, I, and I also feel that now uh, it's, I mean, the sort of work I do now a lot is around school education and trying to bring that to young people because I've realized it's not rocket science. Uh, you know, if we'd learned these things as kids, uh, we wouldn't have created such a mess in our lives, I mean, you know, in our young lives. Maybe it's fun, you know, with all that jealousy and all those hormones running around. But, you know, uh, 
created less uh, less suffering for ourselves and others. You know, uh, I, I un- unfortunately, karmically, whatever, I have not met Dick Nathan. I've not been to Plum, Plum Village and so on, but I've heard so much from uh, Roshi Joan Halifax. Um, just uh, about her time. She spent quite some time with him. And I, I um, aside from the what you talked about, which was you had these moments when you were with him doing walking meditation in Ojai, California, which is mind-blowing, by the way. Do they still have land here? No, we didn't have land. It, was, it belonged to the Ojai Foundation, so he was just uh-huh. doing a retreat oh, he was for just artists. Doing a yeah, seven-day yeah. retreat for artists. Uh, right, right. Is, Anyhow, uh, that... So what you experienced, which was being completely present and not yes. uh, self-referential, um, and the kind of peace that comes with that, this is what I've always thought of when I think of uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, but there's something else that um, maybe, you know, maybe I'm projecting, but in everything in his teachings, there's um, a sense of, real uh, accomplished resilience to what comes our way and i don't i i think that emanates from him because he's in such a you know present state hmm. but uh, yeah talk about that uh, resilience and in, yeah. it, it, does that resonate with you regarding um a, an attribute that that you might have uh, picked up from him maybe without calling it that Yes. So I haven't seen it. I didn't meet him when he was in Vietnam, where I can imagine this was where he trained in this sort of inner resilience. Uh, but I saw him for 30 years. I've seen him more than 30 years in Plum Village, in India, in America, and all around the world. In, in, uh, so um, in Vietnam, uh, I feel, uh, later in Vietnam, so I feel that I've seen him respond or be in situations which are not easy at all, whether it's with a parent of somebody who's become a monk who's trying to who's feeling who's not supportive of their child becoming a monastic or being with the uh, you know the president of India or being with the corporate heads uh, or being with uh, a monk who wants to leave or some and I've seen how his presences or even people like me who uh, I would feel uh, I would ask him you know stupid questions I mean mm-hmm. I'd spend 30 days with him and then ask him a really banal question. Which, uh, and I think that resilience was not saying, you know, um, what a stupid question or, you know, being affected by the emotions of the person who's asking the question or the over-smart Alec in the corporate guys, you know, saying, hey, you know, what is this about? So he's able to bring a presence of his own into the conversation. And that is a great art because you're not being swung around by the external dimension. I think he has a very strong presence, that present moment awareness. And his uh, brain, heart structure uh, absorbs things quickly, but uh, stays centered. And he uses his breathing for that. That's what he's taught me and many millions of others, how to use your breathing as your anchor. And so I find with him that he, he really... Uh, walks his talk. So when he, I mean, literally walks, when he does walking meditation or uh, when he teaches, he's teaching from his own experience. And uh, of course, his primary teacher is the Buddha and 
whether it's the teachings of the Anapanasati Sutra or the Satipatan Sutra, the, the, Pali, the Pali text, or whether the Mahayana text, the Heart Sutra, he lives those uh, teachings in an in a embodied way. So I think that's what I find, that's how the resilience comes, uh, is that he understands his interconnectedness with everything, that there's not this individuated self, and there are also cause and conditions creating a particular manifestation of a situation in a particular space and time. And it is uh, how to respond to that in a, in a skillful and appropriate way. And that's what I would talk of as a sort of inner resilience, that it has to be appropriately situated. So it's not always the same answer to the same question. It's not always the same reaction, uh, same response to a particular uh, circumstance. So I would interpret inner resilience as that, that you are coming from a space of reflective wisdom. But uh, I or think intuitive it, wisdom. Yes, intuitive wisdom is uh, very appropriate. But I would say, because when you talk about him t teaching uh, around the breath, yes, I think no matter what, for, for those, for all of us that have adverse conditions that arise, and that adversity sometimes can take the form of traumatic stuff, people being really ill, people dying, all of it. Uh, I, it does take to me uh, using breath as, a, a, as a, um, an intentional way of stopping the reactivity and creating a spacious uh, atmosphere around this adversity in order for, for one to actually have what you call um, a, uh, an intelligent response to it. Uh, would you say that that's fair? Yes. Yeah. And the breath allows you to create the pause. Yeah. We need a, a little bit of a, a, a separation, a space where we can actually look at our own internal, or even name our own internal uh, reaction. We all have a reaction. But not to act on the reaction. Yeah. Uh, so, 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 well, give us a little bit of what the actual instruction is around the breath, can you? Yeah, so <clears throat> um, the, the practice is very much, uh, it starts with the idea that we bring our breath to help us anchor ourselves in the present moment. So our body is here, but our mind is the one which is all over the place, often in the past or the future, in some regret, some aspiration, or even some sort of thinking process in the present. So it's always about training the mind to come back into the present. So the present is the only time we have any control about. Um, and um, so, so, as we know, the, the past is gone and the future is just an idea. Uh, so if you can be in the present, then we can really uh, look at everything from our body, our mind, our perceptions, our mental formations, our consciousness, and then respond appropriately. So this training is about how to come back to the present each time. After a little while, you can let go of the breath, but the breath is really what helps you to anchor back. So the Buddha gave his teachings on the Anapanasati Sutra, where he talks about uh, the first four on the, on the actual body. So looking at the breath and the body. So things like uh, just coming back to the breath, in breath, out breath, in breath, out breath. And looking at that, also you can feel the breath, whether it's at your nostril. Uh, I use my abdomen. Uh, with children, we, we even play games. We let them lie down and put a boat on their stomach and uh -huh. let them feel the rise and fall of the abdomen. 
So training young people, young uh, students to play with their breath and make the breath their friend mm. um, so that older you can come back to this friend. Mm. And then uh, looking at the body. Uh, and uh, here you can do body scans, uh, starting with the top of your head to the toes, going through the whole body uh, and looking at the body in different ways. One is uh, just being aware how, uh, how much your body does for you. So the sense of gratitude that comes up with it. Uh, so you can smile at that. They say, you know, you look at your heart, for example. You scan your heart and you know your heart's been beating before you were born. Uh, you know, your feet, you walk with your feet, your hands, how many things you do with your hands. So when you scan your body, it's not just scanning the body to like a shavasana where you're relaxing it, uh, where, you know, you're actually being aware and smiling at that part of the body, saying thank you. And in that process, you become more aware. It's like your heart, you know, it's not that you have to wait for an attack. You know, some SOS coming. So you become aware of how you're treating your heart, your liver, etc. And then you also, uh, this, this sense of, it's like a love meditation to your own body. So if you start with that sort of thing, just being aware of your breath, being aware of your body, uh, you start feeling a sense of uh, wellness in yourself and towards yourself. And many of us have, you know, people have negative attitudes about themselves and their bodies. I think it's very important that we, we love ourselves and love our bodies and grow to that. It's not just love because, but knowing that this is what it is, you know, and if you're not accepting the present, whatever the present is, then you're going to suffer. Yeah. And then that moves to emotions. So you look again at the breath and as you were talking earlier, how when an emotion arises, how to try and pause before reacting to it. Yeah, yeah. And so naming it, and, you know, so say if it's anger or jealousy, say, hello, my old friend, anger, here you are again, if you can. You know, and then embracing it with that mindfulness. So mindfulness yes. is the key seed that we're practicing in everything, mm. from opening a door, brushing our teeth. So, so it carries yeah. on like that. That's the practice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I just think, though, that um, the idea of just connecting with your breath and, and, and into your body um, trying sometimes people uh, unfortunately get a little bit caught in their in their heads around naming stuff and oh you know oh my old friend you're back you know uh, i i find and working with people going directly to the breath and identifying just with the actual you know the in and the out yeah put the lie down and put a boat on top of you i don't care if you're three years old or, or 83 right I mean, anything that will, will make that link happen so that, uh, you know, we're just not chasing after uh, these habitual patterns, which yeah. we unfortunately do a lot. So, hey, listen, Shantam, the other thing is you've met a, a lot of remarkable people, have you not? Well, I've been blessed, fortunate in this life to, to do so, yes. Uh, All right. So whatever the... I mean, I've seen you uh, a wonderful picture with your Afghan hat and the and the uh, Prime Minister of India, President of India. I can't remember which yeah. one. Uh, all the way to uh, His Holiness, right, Dalai Lama. So, yeah, give us a couple of anecdotes here. Yes, yeah, so I so I have these different parts of my life. One is, of course, as a political activist and also a social worker. So 
in that context, uh, I, res I respect people uh, like Kofi Annan when I worked at the UN for 15 years. Meeting him, I felt he was mm. a, great, uh, a great person in many ways, uh, low-key. Um, but I also see uh, lots of people as sort of global parents, a global uh, yeah, figures. So His Holiness, for example, the Dalai Lama, mm. I think is a wonderful love, example. Love, love, yeah. Uh, you know, and his presence is so personal. He, he really makes you feel that he, he connects with you as a, as a friend. Um, and Thich Nhat Hanh is actually very much the sort of the boy at the back of the class compared to <laughs> the Lama who's like in the front, you know, uh, high. Uh, and I've seen them together. I've been in situations oh, really? where they've, oh. they've been together, yes, uh, meeting each other. Huge love and respect for each other, but quite different in character. Uh, so, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh is a patient, clear, uh, you know, teacher sort of way, looking at how you can simplify the teachings to, you know, for a child. Mm. And his holiness is a political animal, but also a great being. Uh, then I think um, <clears throat> other spiritual masters, I mentioned people like, you know, Ammaji, I, I, I respect her a lot. I think she embodies love uh, to a large degree. And then in the political field, because I'm involved in that, all sorts of people from, of course, Dr. Manmohan Singh and uh, Sonia Gandhi and then Modi, who's now the Prime Minister. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah, not my, my flavor of the month, but anyway, uh, or the years. But uh, still, to meet them is important to know where they're at. And I think those happen because, partly because I'm, one of the few Buddhist teachers in India. So, you know, so I have to trot, trot out some, some Buddhist teacher. There are lots of good Hindu teachers, but very few Buddhist teachers. So I guess oh, that are Indian-based, you mean? India-based, yeah, yeah. Indian-based Indian uh, Buddhist teachers, that's right. Mm. Yeah. We lost Buddhism in India in the 13th century. So besides the Tibetans and a few Bengalis and others, they're not that many Buddhists. How did we lose? Chosen. How, did, how did that happen? How did we lose Buddhism? Oh, yeah, well, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's a sort of one of these mysteries of history. Uh, we don't know exactly, but I think it was a combination of a, a, basically a clash of Brahmanism and Buddhism um, and, you know, patronage and things which changed from one hand to the other. And then when later when uh, Islam came also to India uh, as a conquering force, then I think that was the, the last nail in the or last straw on the camel's back. But I think it was much more to do with the, because it was already in decline from the 7th, 8th century and Islam came only as a conquering force later in the 11th, 12th century. So it, it was mainly the clash between Brahmanism and Buddhism. Um, so, but I think, uh, yeah, I think I've, I've been fortunate to meet, but not just them. I think I treat everyone as my teacher. Um, I meet all sorts of people uh, every day. Yesterday I was in Varanasi. Uh, I was doing a walk. I'm creating these walks uh, where the Buddha actually walked. So we know the spots yeah. where he went like Saranath or Varanasi or Bodh Gaya, but we don't know how he walked. So I've been doing some work and mapping those. So I met a, a tea stall man. Yes, I, I sat with him for a good half hour, 40 minutes, you know. And for me, he was my guru at that time. He's been sitting there for 40 years. I said, well, you know, uh, this is like Buddha Chai. We, we, we renamed this stall Buddha Chai Stall. I said, well, the Buddha must have come here. He said, yes, and there was the heart and this was this thing. And uh, what a happy man, uh, but living a very, you know, in, in terms of uh, economic survival, very poor man. 
at 40 years, but happy with his chai, excellent chai. Um, I'll be <laughs> taking about 40, 50 people on a walk in December on Christmas Day. So I was doing a recce. And um, I'm going to stop at his place and we're going to get some kachoris and, you know, uh, make chai. And he's going to, you know, get on the map, as it were. <laughs> so, yes. so I feel like that. I, and it's not just humans. I, I, you know, I sit under a tree uh, near, near my house and I, I see how this tree is growing. You know, we put our daughter's umbilical cord under the tree when we planted it. Um, so this tree is now flowering and how, you know, human beings and nature can manifest in different ways, whether in a symbiotic way or not. So there are a lot. I, I, so I think it's not just the big shots, really. I think, and, and I think I, I want to add one thing. I think Tiknathan's great work, actually, is the building of a Sangha, of a community. Mm. I think that is his, going to be his legacy, and it is the Buddha's legacy too. That's why we still have the Dhamma 2,600 years. It is amazing the people he's collected around him who have become monks, nuns, lay people. It's a wonderfully beautiful family, whether it's in Latin America or uh, Hong Kong or uh, you know, Russia to uh, Liberia. And I think this aspect of his teaching, and, he, and it's not a, just, it's, it's actually when we say Buddham Saranam Gachami, Dhammam Saranam Gachami, we also say Sangam Saranam Gachami, which is taking refuge in the Sangha, in the community. And he's been very skillful all throughout, always going back saying, it's not me, it's the community. And what that links into is not just a very good wonderful people I've met through that. But then we realize that there's something like the awakening has to be a collective awakening. It's a, it's a shift in a collective consciousness. And I remember Thai saying something very smart, very skillful. He said the Buddha-to-be, the Maitreya Buddha or the Buddha-to-be, will be a Sangha. It will not be an individual. Mm. It will be a... So I see that understanding of a collective awakening. And I can see that you can go either way. Now with climate change, what's happening right now, you can see there's a huge movement uh, of a shift in consciousness. Now, which way it will go, there's, we don't know. Because there's also a huge resistance from corporate world and things. So I think that's been a very wonderful thing. So for me, I, that's why I feel that everyone's my teacher and everyone's also part of me. It's, and what starts happening in that process is that you realize that the other person's suffering is your suffering. The other person's happiness is your happiness. And I see this when we do this, these pilgrimages. We go as a Sangha and we travel like an organism. So we realize that if one person's uh, a bit out, then everyone's a bit out. Everyone's, so it, we, we can see that in, <clears throat> in the evenings, we have a reflective period. So we have meditation. and <clears throat> It's really like a retreat on wheels. But when we share in the evening, we realize that everyone's view is as valid as somebody else's. We've all had the same experience. But somebody may have noticed something with their eyes. Somebody may have felt something. Somebody may have heard something. And when we share like that, we realize that we're traveling with 15, 20 pairs of eyes and ears, mm. not just my eyes. Or, you know. yeah, yeah. And that has a very different uh, dimension of, uh, of reality. And then if you can extend that to birds and animals and the wind and uh, even the particulates matter in Delhi. You know. <laughs> no. I mean, it's not their fault. You know, it's like, you know, it's, it's stubble burning. Or who are you going to blame? You, know, you can't shoot yeah, a little right. micron something. Right. I must say, though, that uh, um, central to what our, our lineage, which is Neem Karoli Baba and what he represents, which is really 
uh, we mentioned this many times, but when we first started going to Kenshi into that ashram to see him and be with him, the sign over the top was Sri Advait uh, Hanuman Nimkaroli Baba Devil, whatever. Sri Advait, right? Yes. Andul. And yes. that is exactly, I mean, to to us, I and mean, we had never met anybody who was living in a body that wasn't in a subject-object relationship whatsoever, had gone beyond the two. Uh, and so uh, the the people that he spoke so highly to about uh, teachers, rather, uh, many of them were Tibetans, okay? And I had a particular experience where he told me something was going to happen that I had no idea, and I met Kalu Rinpoche uh, uh-huh. days later yes. told me the whole day was really a, a yes. huge blessing. But that's been really a part of what we, uh, what we brought through, centered around, and I quote this all the time, of course, I mean, I'm not sure how much you know about what we do and everything, but at all of our retreats that we have with Ramdas and Maui and Krishnadas, there we we have a um, quite a um, uh, a wonderful uh, relationships with many of our Buddhist friends, you know, from the Vipassana, Jack Joseph, Sharon, uh, to yes. Roshi, and so on, and they're always at. So there's that combo that really represents. Uh, who we are and the satsang is at the core of it where we do similarly to you we do uh we take people up following our footsteps ramdas is particularly up into the himalayas up in uh deva bumi which uh the kamoan and uh i often say the uh, buddha was at you know there's refuge in the buddha the dharma and the sangha and which one would you say is the most important? And he said, Sangha is the most important. And everything you just codified around uh, our potential, hate to use a big word, salvation, is to me, I totally agree with you. It's around how we can coalesce with each other. And uh, as we do take whatever social action that we we all need to take in, in whatever different ways we can, we're doing that work on ourselves. I, you know, I love what you said in the beginning. You were doing all this kind of social action, but you were just getting like really angry. <laughs> and it was like, wait, this is this can't be what it's about. I think those lessons are extraordinarily important, and and I think satsang is absolutely the way in which we we can. Uh, we can come together. Yeah. No, I think and globally. Now, when I was in <clears throat> Northampton recently, when we met. Um, I didn't meet I you was, there, but you met, oh, I met, Inland, you yeah. met us. I, yeah, yeah. I met, yeah, I met the, there was the Bhandar. Yeah. And um, it was phenomenal. I just realized that, you know, the whole, it just transmigrated in a way from India to a small place called Northampton in, in, <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. in Massachusetts. Yeah. And I, I, I came out of the, the temple and here was people singing Hanuman Chalisa better than any of us can do practically. I mean, most, <laughs> I, I, never, I didn't know Hanuman Chalisa. <laughs> so, you know, and uh, the, the, the Bhakti Bhava of people coming out and then this wonderful food. And I thought, wow, you know, you know, this is beyond this Sangha, the Sangha is, is beyond any nation state or any, it, it, the, the consciousness is, is universal. Yeah. And we have to try and link that, that there's uh, goodness, kindness, uh, awakening uh, globally, and so we don't discriminate by being black, brown, 
or, you know, and even the ones we feel may be being destructive. Uh, I think I, I always have hope that there's a tra transformation is possible. Yeah. Um, you know Bernie Glass Glassman? Yes, yes. We yeah. traveled together. Also, Bernie was a great, great man. Yeah. So, uh, Krishnadas, just because you're just talking something that is, is also as important uh, to me, and I know you, even though we don't know each other very well. Yeah. Um, and that's uh, he was asked after the stroke. Uh, you know, he wanted. Can we get together? We want to ask you questions and so on. And so they started to, and he kind of got, you know, he was, he got grouchy as, as Bernie get at times yes. and, uh, and said, you know what, unless you can do all this stuff and we can talk intellectually about the teachings and the this and the that, yeah. but unless you're a mensch, forget about it. Hmm. And, and that's the Yiddish word that we used before, hmm. unless there's yes. real kindness. Yeah. And there's real humility and there's real gentleness and there's love and compassion. None of this stuff means anything at all. Yeah. And uh, he, he, boy, did he represent that. I mean, the, the kinds of yeah. stuff he did going into the camps and doing those uh, yes. retreats there, just phenomenal. Yeah. No, I, I, and when we travel, I, I've been very fortunate when you asked who I know, because I've traveled out with on these pilgrimages with whether it's Bernie or Bob or, uh, Thurman or yes. Joan Halifax or we co-lead these journeys of Stephen Batchelor. Yeah. I find that um, uh, the humility that uh, the Bernie had was phenomenal. I mean, he I had to push him to teach. I said, Bernie, we're doing this journey together, man. You know, come on, man. you know, you're the you're the big guru in this. No, no, you do it, you do it. <laughs> and so, but his style was like, okay, so it was informal, and then he'd start talking at dinner table. But never sitting on a podium, you know, like, <clears throat> so I remember that I'd expected him to be giving these teachings and then I ended up giving everything. And then he would just be, but he'd be adding the whole, there was a whole dimension of, uh, of, yeah, this humility, love, goodness, you know, Kindness. camaraderie, uh, and uh, which, 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 is, which is the juice. It's not the intellectual stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm glad we and came we, full circle there, uh, Shantam, because in the very beginning you were saying, well, you know, the bhakti stuff is really not my thing. And yeah. I loved, you know, like the the crystalline clarity of Buddhist reality appeals to me as much. Yeah. Um, and that's why I kind of like that combo with the with the heart stuff that uh, that that we have yeah. and we get through chanting the Hanuman Chalisa, you know, so yes. it's a, a, a beautiful combo. But uh, I do what have actually I, I got involved in that and I was really I was sort of tripping out with it. When I was saying I was doing all the I was actually the manager of a performing troupe, meaning we were doing chanting. We were chanting. So actually oh. chanting was my opening of my heart. That's how I got involved with and that's when I went to America first because I was uh, we had a group called a band called Prana, and we do chanting. Uh, you know, who was in the band? There was a woman called Suma, David, Nick. Uh, it was based, based out of Wales in England. We live in teepees, uh, you know, and we did a lot of festivals in England. Really? So I was. Then we got this idea to go to America. Drummers, and basically we were doing Hindu chants, Hindu chants, African chants, and then chants ourselves. You know. Uh, so many of them are very popular now. You know, 
the river is flowing and all that and we do all this stuff. <laughs> you know, so but that was in the so I think that was I think chanting is a wonderful practice because it opens your heart mm. and you lose uh, that sense of self. Uh, but then when you come out of it, that's so my feeling was that you, you get into a trance-like situation and uh, it's a wonderful space. But to maintain that, that's when something like the breath comes. So I feel my mantra is the breath now mm. rather than using the mantra. So I used mantra before, mm-hmm. but then you get sort of caught. I mean, I still come back to even Om and sometimes mm-hmm. and my mind is distracted. Om Ram. Namah Shivaya. <laughs> but I still, but so I, you're right. We have to combine all these practices. Uh, it's not one or the other. But I think being brought up in India, uh, you can become very. Uh, you see the, the 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 stuff around, and it's a lot of bhakti, uh, which is abused to a large degree. So it's a wonderful as a self practice, but actually, when you're brought up in India, you think, man, what is all that? It's, people are giving over their power to a guru in that in that mindset. Yeah, and. Sorry to interrupt, Shantam, but yeah. just the thought came to me, actually. Well, you, you were, thanks for coming and joining us for the Becoming Nobody Ramdas movie, but if you might remember when there was footage of Neem Karoli Baba and Ramdas was talking over it, um, he talked about, so they took my life over, I was there for six months, I just did whatever they asked me, and it was all a joy. It was surrender with no surrender. So yes. I just I just want to. That's the other side. Yes, there are many, shall we say, unkosher <laughs> teachers and gurus in yes. India and anywhere, but particularly there because it's a good gig. Uh, but uh, and and the ones that are real, which I we can say are fewer, uh, but those ones that are, there's no matter of surrendering. You're not surrendering anything. Right, that the, the yes. you realize that this is all within without. It's not a matter yes, of yes. an in other. Fact, the one who bows and the one who's bowed to are both yes. by nature empty. So we yeah. yeah. So there is no other in you. Yeah. No, and and I see that even when I do that for a you know when we go to an altar. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Even yeah. with the Buddha, the Buddha exists yeah. within you. And I'll say. Yeah. I think you're right, and I think over time you you realize uh, you know. As a young man, you you have a slightly different view of what is right and wrong, and, and then you suddenly yeah. realize that love is really the the, the key ingredient, uh, and how you come to it, uh, to that awakening is you know whether it's through <laughs> in sort of gyan yoga, bhakti yoga, yeah, karma yeah. yoga. You That's know, beautiful. Look at all yeah. of the availability to each person's yeah. penchant yeah. for whatever makes yes. sense. Yeah. Okay, so combining it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, how about a little meditation? Since we're, I mean, you're... yeah. So <clears throat> I, um, I have my uh, bell, and I thought that <clears throat> um, since you we spoke about the breath, I think we'll just do something very small around the breath and being aware of the breath. Yeah. Okay. So, great. So we call this a bell, of, uh, a mindfulness bell, and this is a bell which is invited to both uh, tune our mind into the sound, and then from the sound into the breath. And I'll just guide it lightly. So just sit in a comfortable way and uh, try and see that your back is straight, 
uh, so your the abdomen area is free to be you know to breathe easily and now if you want you can close your eyes or put a downcast view uh, but an internal uh, look and just listen to the sound of the bell and i'll invite it three times As your mind gets absorbed by the sound, now come to your breath. <clears throat> Just being aware of your in-breath as you breathe in and your out-breath as you breathe out. If you find it easy, you can put your hand on your abdomen and just feel the rise and fall of the abdomen as you breathe in and as you breathe out. If you find it easier, you can even mentally say in with the in-breath out with the out breath. And be aware of the whole length of the breath. From the beginning of the in-breath to the end of the in-breath from the beginning of the out-breath the end of the outbreath. And just notice the quality of the breathing. You may notice it's getting deeper, going slower. And now use that energy of the breath to infuse your whole body. Breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, 
I feel at ease. Calm, ease. And now with a gentle half smile in your lips, breathe in. With your out breath, release. Release all your thinking, your projects, your ideas. Breathing in, I smile. Breathing out, I release. You don't feel like smiling, you can do the yoga of smiling. It has a neurological effect. Just move your mouth like that. Smile. Release. And breathing in, being aware in this present moment. Breathing out, knowing it's a wonderful moment. Many, many conditions of happiness here and now. The fact that we can hear, we can see, we can breathe. Present moment. Wonderful moment. And now I'll invite the sound of the bell again. So be aware of this miracle of hearing. And those of you who have your eyes closed, when you open your eyes, after two sounds of the bell, be aware of the miracle of seeing its forms and colors and shapes. Thank you so much. That was a wonderful, a wonderful pause, Shantan. Thank you so much for being yeah. here. And uh, everybody, of course, we will, as usual, link up uh, so that you can get to know more about Shantan. And there's books that he's authored. And uh, his tour, you're still doing the tours, right? Yes, I'm doing them. Uh... 
two or three twice a, a year in the winter. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I'm doing one now in November and then one in February. Uh-huh. So we'll have that linked and then up. Another to... one in December. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and so, um, it's to, called Buddha, Buddha Path. Yeah. Following the steps of the Buddha. We're following right. the steps of Ramdas into the Himalayas. Yes. Yes. Wonderful. <laughs> I mean, I think any journey, as we yeah. said earlier, it's yeah. wonderful to yeah. go out of your appreciated environment. Yeah. And we live, Derud- <clears throat> we live in Dehradun now. So anybody wants to. Oh yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, yeah, and we have found that the people who go, they become very connected through being in these holy places, and I'm sure it's the same for you as well. Yeah. So it's it's a wonderful experience. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. And no, uh, thank you, Raghu, and thank you for inviting me onto your show. Um, I, I'm I'm very glad that this, these teachings are, you know, penetrating through all sorts of airways everywhere yeah. in the world. Yeah, the technology connects us in an yeah. interesting, no, it's amazing. familiar here it, way. Here it is, my evening, and there it is. You're getting going, starting your morning, yeah. Delhi. You know, <laughs> and uh, yeah, maybe you'll go back in the house now. You'll you'll be okay after a bit. <laughs> oh, <coughs> yeah, throat good. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, I feel guilty now. Uh, so again, yeah. everybody. Go to uh, BeHereNowNetwork.com slash MindRolling and you'll look at the show notes and you'll see, you can also find the video at the bottom and uh, links everywhere. And we're going to link you up with Shantam. And I, Shantam, uh, we'll see you either. You'll be here stateside again, I'm hoping, or I will see you in Delhi for sure and catch you this time. Yes, I, I, I'd love that. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Raghun. Thank you.